in the book of Psalms, number 46 this morning, please, if you'll turn there with me. Psalm number 46, Psalm 46. Open your Bible there, then after a moment, if you have, uh, if you can get to it in time, go to Isaiah chapter 40. Stick your finger there in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Psalm 46 and Isaiah 40. Before I read the Scripture today, <coughs> you know, Baptists are not liturgical people. We don't have an order of service. We don't, I don't wear a robe. We don't have a lot of ritualistic type things here. It's pretty plain and unvarnished service. We sing, we pray, and we preach. What I want you to understand in a day when this has been so minimized and so many things have replaced the preaching of God's Word, I want to remind you again as a church that the heart of Baptist worship, and I believe the heart of biblical worship, is the preaching of the Word of God. I, I can't overemphasize it. I thought about it much this week. God uses the preaching of His Word for the salvation of people's souls. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21, it says that the preaching of the Word of God or the gospel may be foolishness to human beings, but it is the power of God that changes and transforms lives. And to the Christian, those of you who are saved, which would be probably 95% of the people sitting here this morning, what is the purpose of the preacher's sermon, the preaching of the Word every week? It is to edify you. It is to strengthen you. It is to encourage you. It is to challenge you in your Christian life. It is to nourish you and help you grow. It has so many different functions, the preaching of the Word of God, and it's been minimized so often today in our culture. God speaks through His Word. He speaks through the preacher who preaches the Word of God, who is anointed of God. That's an awesome responsibility for me. I don't take it lightly. I spend many, many, many hours, probably 10, 12 hours a week on this sermon alone. And I do it because I know if people will listen and if they will hear, if they will truly hear, that God can work powerfully in their lives. So this morning, I hope you're listening real well. And I hope that you have your Bible with you and bring it every time we come to church here because we will always use it. And stand with me as we read from the book of Psalms, number 46, Brother Larry's favorite passage in the Bible, I believe. Psalm number 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, and though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, that would be an earthquake, wouldn't it? And then he says, Selah. And Selah is a word which means stop, meditate, think about this. Think about the power of God that can move mountains, carry them into the sea, that can do all these great, great things. 
I won't read the entire passage. I'll go to verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. That's a promise. And the God of Jacob is our refuge. Stop. Think about it. Selah. Verse 11 repeats it. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Stop. God is our refuge. The message today is confidence and comfort in God. Confidence and comfort in God himself. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> the year was 1527, and anything that could go wrong had already gone wrong. Martin Luther was fighting for his life, fighting to survive. A civil war was raging across Germany. We know it today as the Peasant War. And many people said it was the result of his teaching, the teaching of the priesthood of the believer, the teaching of justification by grace through faith. In addition to the war that was raging around him, Martin Luther was sick. He had numerous illnesses that he was dealing with. The plague also broke out in Wittenberg. It was so bad they closed the university where he was the main professor of theology, and so now he was without a means to make a living. And then he had been betrayed. Dear friends, associates in the ministry, people he had won to Christ, people who he had pastored and led and had been associated with him in his ministry, they had left him and broken his heart. The Reformation movement that he was largely responsible for was drowning him with work, and he talked about the hundreds of requests for letters and other information that came to him each week. And then to cap it all, in 1527, his little girl passed away, and he was overwhelmed with grief and melancholy. It was a terrible, terrible year for Martin Luther. And Luther turned to hymn writing. He was a lover of music. He played the guitar. He sung. He led his congregation with his guitar singing. And Martin Luther turned to writing hymns. And because he was a great, great theologian, one of the greatest who ever lived, perhaps, Martin Luther began writing hymns. And his best-known one was sung by Chris a while ago. Boy, didn't he sing the hair off of that thing? Wow. I mean, he sung it. He sung it. It hadn't been sung any better than that anywhere, I don't believe. And the song is one of Christianity's mightiest hymns. I hope you love it. And I hope you understand it, because if you understand it, you will love it as a Christian. It's a mighty fortress is our God. I stopped as I read Psalm 46 in verse 1. God is called our refuge, or another word for that would be our fortress. In verse 7, he is called our refuge a second time. And in verse 11, he is called our refuge for a third time. You circle that in your Bible there. Three times in one little space, 
God is called or he's referred to as our refuge. And each time after it says that, it says, stop and think about it. Selah. If those words could get in your soul and grip your heart, they could be a transformational, life-changing day for everyone in this house today. Note those words. A mighty fortress. What is a fortress? A fortress is a shelter. A fortress is a fort. The word fort is a shortened form of fortress. A A fortress is a retreat from the dangers of life. He also uses the word a bulwark from the storms of life. What is a bulwark? It's a defensive wall. So you look at a great fortress and you think of it as a defense. You could get down behind those granite walls and you could hide and you could be safe. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills. Just stop and think of those words. We just sing them and don't think about them. Mortal ills. Mortal ills are things like being sick. It's like war raging around you. It's like the plague. It's like your little girl dying. It's your heart breaking. It's your family being destroyed. It's all those mortal ills, those bad things that come in life that every one of us face from time to time in our existence. And he goes on, what a hymn of great theology. They used to say this, that the hymn book is the layman's theology book. The hymnal is the layman's theology. Theology means knowledge of God. And one of the great ways we learn about God is to sing great songs. The songs that endure through the centuries, the songs that present great teaching, great thoughts, big thoughts, massive thoughts that can carry us through whatever it may be that life brings upon us. And Luther's thoughts during this time of terrible tragedy and travail in his own soul, his own thoughts expressed in that. A mighty fortress is our God. In other words, God himself, God himself is our protection and our security. And then he goes on. He says, and he talks about an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. That ancient foe, of course, is the devil, Satan. I recently did a Sunday night series because I wanted you to understand Satan, who he is and what he does. And then he says, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. In other words, if we depended upon ourselves, we would always lose. And in that, there's a great theological point. Luther understood the fact of human weaknesses. You won't live too long in life if you're a sane person. You will figure out you can't really do everything. We don't do ourselves a service when we teach our children, oh, honey, you can do anything. You can be the president if you want to. There's about 300 million other people wanting to be too. And so you you can't make that promise that you can be anything and do anything. That's a humanistic concept, and we all have wonderful and great potential, but we also come to those places in life where we say, you know what, I just can't do it. Human strength is not enough. 
We don't want to rain on anybody's dreams, but at the same time, we never want to forsake just being reasonable and common sense people, do we? And there are times that human strength fails. Our striving would be losing. Luther had hit that wall, and the plague, and the death of his daughter, and the Reformation movement overwhelming him, and the betrayal of his friends so broke his heart, he understood there was nothing he could do. We are not really ultimately in control of everything. He puts that into the psalm. And then he talks, if it were not for the right man on our side, who is the right man? Well, he names him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of God's own choosing. In other words, he was telling people in the song, God is with us. That ought to stir everybody's heart. That ought to leave us sitting here, you know, staring into space when we sing that kind of song. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who is on our side if, we are, if we're on his side, of course. And then he talks about the fact that God never changes. He says, from age to age, the same. Our God never changes. It's one of the great theological truths of Christianity that God is immutable, meaning he cannot change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then it says, and he will win the battle. We don't depend upon ourselves for the victory. We depend upon him. He will be the ultimate victory for us. And then Luther states another great truth. The body they may kill. He recognizes our mortality. The body they may kill, but then he says there's something else and it abides. And what is it that abides? It's God's truth. God's truth abideth still. You understand the power of a song like that? You understand those thoughts and those words and those concepts? Sometimes we sing, you know, little ditties and little songs, and they're catchy, and we like the tune, but they lack that kind of depth. Think about that, the body they may kill. I can die. I can be, my life can be over, but there's something that abides. It's God's truth. Well, what is God's truth? Well, God's truth is the Bible. You have it in your hand. Jesus said, thy word is truth. What is God's truth? It's Jesus Christ himself who said, I am the truth. It's God himself that the psalmist wrote, God is truth. It's the Christian faith that is truth, that is that fortress that is our security and our protection. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. Truth is eternal. It's not a passing whim. It's not faddish. Truth is never trendy. Truth endures. It endures for all of the centuries. And then he ends his hymn. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Selah. Stop and think about it. God's kingdom never ends. It's eternal. And our lives are a little bleep on the line of time. We're here for a moment.
and we're gone. But God is the God of the ages. Now, here's what I want you to think about now that we've gone through that briefly. What I want you to see is that Martin Luther, with all these problems around him, let me read him again, a civil war. He's sick. He has the, the plague is killing people all around him. The university's closed down. He's lost his position. He's been betrayed. He is overwhelmed by the movement that he started, and his little girl dies, and it's all crashing down upon him at one time. And then what does he do? Instead of sitting and talking about Martin Luther, he writes that song. Now, here's what I want you to get. You ready to get it? Here's the point. Martin Luther didn't write a hymn about himself and how he felt. He wrote a song about Almighty God being our fortress. And here's what Luther understood that most Christians never discover, that if you'll change your focus and get your focus on the greatness of our God, that you can be comforted and you can have confidence throughout your life. But if you turn your focus on the inside and you complain and whine and feel self-pity in all of your difficulties and dilemmas of life, I can promise you that it's going to get worse. But Luther knew how to have confidence and comfort, and he found it in the Lord. Now, that's just not a cliche saying. That's not a knee-jerk reaction. That's a truth. The comfort and the convenience for the Christian are found in the Word of God. Now, I want you to turn quickly to the book of Isaiah chapter 40 then, because Isaiah chapter 40 takes the same line of thinking, the same line of truth, and it describes it in a little different detail. And I want you to notice how it starts out. Isaiah chapter 40, it starts out with comfort. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Comfort you, comfort you, it says. Many people have noticed something about the book of Isaiah. Now look up here a minute. I, want you to, I really want you to understand this because the rest of your life, I don't want you to forget something about the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, many people have, have believed and understood that it, it is compared to the Bible itself. Compare the book of Isaiah to the entire Bible. For example, the Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Old Testament part of your Bible has 39 books, and the New Testament part of your Bible has 27 books. And so Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, people have observed it. It's compared to the 39 books of the Old Testament. Why? Because it's about the law. It is about God who is ready to come down and judge the nation of Israel because they have left God, they've forsaken God, and they've turned to their idols. And so it is dark and bleak, and the prophet, over and over, you get tired of reading the first 39 chapters. I just read it a couple months ago. And, it, and when you get through, it's melancholy, it's, it's heavy. And you read Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, and man, you think, wow, God is sure going to, he's going he's to bring judgment on this crowd. And then you get to chapter 40, and it's like you're reading a different book. So much so that there have been people through the years that said there are two Isaiahs. Now, I don't believe that. That's a liberal concept. Don't ever, don't ever believe that. But many of the liberal theologians say, well, the book of Isaiah 
there's two Isaiahs because the fellow that wrote the first 39 chapters is sure not the fellow that wrote the last 27 chapters. But that's not true. It is the same Isaiah. I won't go into that. In chapter 40, it changes. It's full of grace. It's full of salvation. It's full of encouragement and hope and comfort. The very promises of God are on every page. It's one of the most beloved books in all of our Bible, and it's a great book to comfort and to strengthen us. Now, chapter 40 is the turning point, and it begins with comfort, doesn't it? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Look in verse 5. Where's the, where does the comfort come from? Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it. Put your little note right there in the margin. Do you know who the glory of the Lord is? The glory of the Lord is Jesus Christ. That is a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the earth. The Bible says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it's talking about the coming of Christ. There's a promise here that Jesus is going to come one day. Now, go down to verse number 8. And there's a second promise that brings comfort to God's people. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Isn't that good? The word of our God shall stand forever. There's the eternality of truth. There's the Lord Jesus Christ himself saying, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. And so we have the promise that Jesus is going to be coming The Messiah is going to appear. The Lord is going to send somebody who's going to help comfort the people. In verse number 8, the Word of God will be here forever, and all of its promises are true. And so, again, we have comfort from God's Word. Now, we'll go down to the end of the chapter. And if I can go down through there, man, if I had time, every single phrase here is just pregnant with meaning. But we're going to go down to verse 30. And 31, even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. See, there's defeat. That's where Martin Luther was. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. A promise that God is going to send the Messiah, and he will reveal the glory of God. A promise that the Word of God abideth forever. And boy, we are committed to that in this church. And thirdly, there's the promise that if you wait upon the Lord, if you'll get your focus upon the Lord, if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus, that there will be comfort and there will be confidence and there will be strength. Perhaps you remember about 10, 12 years ago, a movie came out and it's been a classic since. The movie was called Chariots of Fire. It was set at the 1924 Olympics, and uh, they were held that year in Paris. There was a young man there from Scotland, the son of a missionary. His name was Eric Lydell. Eric Lydell had spent the last four years training to run the 100-meter race. Now, the 100 meter, a meter is just a little bit, two or three inches longer than a yard, so it's like a sprint. It's over in 10 seconds. 
You use a different kind of muscles. You use the, the uh, fast muscle fibers in your body. They're, they're different. You train differently. He trained for four years to run for 10 seconds for his nation, Scotland, and hope he might win the gold. And then he got there, and they had scheduled the 100-meter race on Sunday morning. And he had been, he was not only a missionary's son, he believed what his father had taught. He believed the Bible. He had convictions about the Lord's day. Boy, I need to say that 10 times because Baptists in America have lost their convictions about the Lord's day by and large. It's no different than any other day. But Eric Liddell viewed the Lord's day as a holy day that it belonged to God, and he wouldn't run on Sunday. He said, no, I won't run today. I will not leave worship for a sporting event. Well, the pressure got on him because in attendance at the Olympics was the Prince of Wales, the prince, the leader of his country. And so the prince heard that he had withdrawn because they knew he was probably going to win this event. It was a great hope of all of England. They were talking about Eric Liddell. And Eric Liddell had an appointment then with the Prince of Wales. And the Prince of Wales said to him, and I quote, Son, Great Britain needs you. You must run. Talk about political pressure. The Prince of England, of Wales, comes and says, you must run. You'll be letting down your nation if you don't run. And Eric Liddell had a greater loyalty to God than he did the prince. And he said, no, I can't run. But I will enter some other races and hope I can bring glory to England. So he entered the 200 twice as long, maybe an outside chance he ran it. He won the bronze. And then he entered the 400. Now, the 400 is not a sprint. It's a long race. It takes different muscle fibers. It takes a different training regimen. It's an entirely different thing than the 100 and the 200 because you have to have endurance for it. He's running against the greatest runners in the world. And what does he do? He wins the gold. And that's what the theme of that movie was about. And you've seen it. I love to see it because they freeze the frames and he's in slow motion as he's sprinting there, as you see in the picture. And you can see the exertion, the exhaustion. You can see every nerve being strained. Somehow, somehow, he wins the 400-meter race over the rest of the world. What was he doing on Sunday a couple of days before when he should have been running the 100? He was preaching. He preached in a church. What do you think his text was? Isaiah 40, verse 30. 
even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, even if you go from the 100 to the 400. They shall walk and not faint if they've learned to wait upon the Lord. Wow, what a story. He went back to China after he had won the gold medal for Scotland. He joined his dad in their missionary work. He died in 1945 of cerebral meningitis. He's 43 years old. He died when the Japanese took over China and put him in a concentration camp in horrible, horrible conditions. He was persecuted. He knew pain and suffering of a terrible, terrible, to a terrible, terrible degree. But he never turned his back on the Lord. He was faithful. He had learned to wait on the Lord and renew his strength. Now, what is the confidence? There's the comfort for God's people, but chapter 40 also gives us confidence for God's people. Last week, I preached to you about a time for confidence. I talked about all the changes in the world, how everything in our culture is being torn apart, every tradition, every heritage, our history, our constitution, our, our values, our morals, everything seems to be under attack today from this godless culture in which we find ourselves living. I hope you wrote this down. If you didn't, I'll give you a second chance at it. You've got a place there on your program. Let me tell you what the word confidence means, literally. You have a prefix, con, C-O-N, and it means with. And the middle part, F-I-D-E, is the Latin root for faith. So to say I have competence means I have, I go with faith, with faith, literally is what it means. What is confidence? With faith. And so my point to you is the basis for us having to being able to move forward with faith, our confidence is God himself. Our confidence is God himself. And Isaiah chapter 40 brings that out. Look at verse 12. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? It, it pictures God with the sea. The waters there mean the sea. It's like God is holding the seas in his hand. And who has meted out heaven with the span? And the span is the distance from this finger to the tip of your thumb. There's a span. And so God is pictured as holding the seas in his hand and he's meted out the whole universe with a span here. He's pictured as being so, so great. In verse 13, who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Who thinks they could teach God anything? With whom took he counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding? And so, in verse 12, we have the power of God, the greatness of God. In verse number 13 and 14, we have the wisdom of God. We have the knowledge of God. 
In verse 12, we have the, we have the God is omnipotent. He has all power. There's no power that he doesn't have. He can create the whole world. In verse 13 and 14, we have his omniscience. He knows everything. And then note with me, if you will, as you go down through this, verse 15, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Think of that. We use that term, don't we? It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, the smallest amount you can imagine. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. No offense to our dear country. Nobody here loves America more than me. But you know what? America isn't so big, big a deal to God. It's a drop in the bucket. Think of that. The greatest nations on the earth are a drop in the bucket to him. They're like the small little grams or little pieces of dust that get on a scale. Look down in verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing. China, Russia, Iran, America, England, all of our nations think that there's something. God says, you're no big deal to me. I created the whole universe. In verse number 18, notice what it says. To whom will you liken God? Or to what likeness will you compare him? To who are you going to compare God? I hear people say, and they don't think about it very deeply, of course. Oh, God is like thus and so. Mm-mm. Listen to me clearly. Read my lips. God ain't like nothing you know. God is in a category by himself. You don't ever compare God to anything. Years and years ago, somebody took the commercial uh, for the Coke company, and they were singing, you know, and they would say, God is like a Coke. He, you know, whatever Coke did for you. No, God's not like a Coke. God is not like any person or any being or anything. God is like, not like the heathen gods, the idol gods of the heathens here, he, the heathen he's saying here. Verse 25, he says it again, to who will you compare me? And who would I be equal with? Says the Holy One. Notice the words there, Holy and One, are capitalized, meaning Almighty God. There's nobody like him. There's no equal to him. In those days, when, the, when this was written, when a nation defeated another nation, they thought that the nation who were the victors, that their gods had helped them, and they were thus greater than the gods of the defeated. And what, was, what really throws you for a curve here is that Babylon had just defeated Israel. And so Israel was on the losing side. Did that mean that God was, had been defeated by Murdoch, the immoral pagan deity of the Babylonians? No. Their circumstances, listen to me carefully, their circumstances may have contradicted the Scriptures, but the truth was God was great, and Murdoch was not. And am I talking to somebody today, and your circumstances seem to contradict the Scriptures? Are you going to believe your circumstances? Are you going to believe your experience? Or are you going to believe God? That's the point. Look at verse 22. This is why we have confidence in God. He sits upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
<laughs> Boy, God is not intimidated by humanity, is he? We're like grasshoppers in his sight. Now, he loves grasshoppers, but we're still not very consequential except as he works through us. And then in the great question, the great argument for God, we find it in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and behold, who has created these things? Who created these things? Two or three weeks ago, my wife and I went up to uh, Pipestem, West Virginia. It's near where my older brother lives, and we wanted to visit him. He's not doing too well right now. And so we went to see him and stayed in a lodge up there at a park called Pipestem State Park. Oh, man, what a beautiful place. I almost sent word home I had resigned and I was just staying. <laughs> I didn't want to leave. I'll tell you what, we were on the third floor of this lodge that we stayed in, and the hill fell down like that. You know, it's in West Virginia. There's not a flat place up there. And, and so we were on the third floor, but it looked like it was five floors down there. And I got up early that morning, and I walked to the window and slid the sliding glass door back and stepped out on the little balcony. And I looked, and I just thought, oh, my soul, my soul. There's those mountains, and there was a river down there where that little gorge was, and the fog was coming up, and the fog would lift, and then the fog would go away, and sometimes I could see one point, and then I couldn't see it. I'd see another. And I looked right down below me, and there were two deer in the yard. I mean, I could drop a biscuit on their head, which I, I almost did. I dropped a cookie down there to them. There were two deer, I kid you not, and then two gray foxes came out of the woods. And then two raccoon came out of them. And we had a box of cookies, ginger snaps. I didn't know animals loved ginger snaps, but boy, we were flipping them out there and sailing them out there, and they were running around, and the raccoons were grabbing them from the foxes, and it was, it was wonderful. And I thought, God made raccoons, God made foxes, God made deers, God made mountains, God made that river. How could anybody be an atheist? This is the greatest argument for the creative power of God I've ever seen in my life, right here in old West Virginia. Boy, what a death blow to atheism, huh? Tell me about it. Those mountains just one day hooved up. And evolution guided the genes, and so some things turned into raccoons and some into foxes and some into... Sure, likely story, Bo. I've got a bridge I'd like to sell you underwater, too. How, in how incredulous could you possibly be to deny God his glory and his creative power? Verse 28. A summary of all the greatness of God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, He's eternal. The Lord, He's sovereign. The Creator, I just described, He doesn't faint, He's powerful. He doesn't get weary because He's omnipotent. There's no searching of his understanding. 
He has all wisdom. And then it says, if you'll stop in verse 31 and fix your mind and your focus upon him as did Martin Luther, if you'll wait on him, he'll renew your strength. And you will experience the comfort and the confidence that only God can give. Turn to chapter 53 for just a couple moments. Isaiah 53, go on over in this wonderful book. You see, Isaiah 40 is true because Isaiah 53 is true and happened. If it were not for chapter 53, then 40 wouldn't mean much to us because 53 describes the ultimate power of God. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not, obviously talking about Jesus. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him with his stripes. We're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The cross described here, wounded for our transgressions. The cross, ladies and gentlemen, today reveals the greatest act of love, of sacrifice, of suffering in all of history. And the empty tomb that happened three days later reveals the power of God what power does our God have? He could not only create a universe, but he could raise the dead. He can have, give us victory over both sin and death, its consequence. And so I go to verse 1 of Isaiah 40. Comfort ye. Comfort my people, saith the Lord. The comfort that there's a God who has all power all wisdom, a God who loves us so much that he sent his only son, a God who has such power he could raise that son from the dead after he was crucified. And this morning, you have a choice. You can respond to him according to the Scriptures and receive and accept his offer of salvation, or you can go it alone. That's up to you. God won't coerce your will. He has given you the power of choice. You can reject him or you can accept him. The ball's in your court. Whatever you do, whatever decision you make, there, of course, will be consequences for it either way. I pray today that you know him. 
that you have humbled yourself at some point in your life and you have repented of your sins and you've put your faith and confidence, that you've held out your empty hands like a beggar and said, God, I accept your gift of salvation. Put it there. I hope you won't walk out the door saying no to him if you've not done that today. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And if you would stand to your feet with me, please.